you can tell a lot from a photo. The one I'm looking at now is of Brooke Fraser at the New Zealand Music Awards in 2007. She's in a Kate Sylvester dress looking stunning, as always, and holding one of the five awards that she won that year. She's beaming her huge grin out to whoever is standing next to the photographer and she looks so happy and so successful, like someone who's living their best life. And you get the same vibe from the video footage of the night. And now we have a proper queen. Hey, Brooke Fraser, you look flash. We have something very special, an item of jewellery that you're wearing this evening. Go on, flash it. Come on, girl. I'm getting married. She's getting married. But there's also a lot you can't tell from photos and red carpet interviews. I'm Melody Thomas, and in part two of Resonate, 10 years of Brooke Fraser's flags, we'll break the surface of this shining image for a deeper understanding of what was actually going on in the lead-up to the album's release. It takes a lot of time to get that exhausted, that deep in your bones. She was all over the world trying to find what it was that she wanted to say and how she wanted to say it. There's definitely a healthy dose of darkness in that song. I love that song. You know, as a songwriter, when those things happen and your hair stand up, And we both had that feeling. If you haven't been a touring musician, chances are your ideas about touring are that it's really glamorous. The jet-setting from country to country, greeting throngs of adoring fans, costume changes, makeup artists, after-parties. But for the majority of musicians, touring is actually really difficult. Campbell Smith, Brooke's longtime manager. Brooke will tell you herself she's not the most comfortable of tourers. She's not a she's not a 300 days a year road warrior. Touring means hours in buses and planes, meals snatched from wherever is close and fast, sound check and media interviews in the lead up to the actual gig, the brief high of the concert itself followed by greeting fans, packing everything down, getting back to the hotel room, probably late and alone, before getting up super early to do it all over again. I think definitely the experience of Albertine and writing and touring that record, you know, going into America for the first time and all of this expansion, but being, you know, just a one-woman show, so to speak, you know, it was, if I didn't get out there and do the work, no one else was going to. So it was a, it was a big workload over an extended period of time. I actually went and dug out my um, some of my old journals this morning and was kind of reading through a little bit about that time in my life and I was like, gosh, I was quite traumatised, <laughs> apparently. She was definitely getting tired. Kim Bosher, head of Sony Music New Zealand. She was um, finding the promo in particular challenging because it's one thing to get up and sing the songs but then to have to do interviews all day and talk about it and tell that story. That story is the story of Albertine, the girl who Brooke's second album was named after. Albertine is an orphan that Brooke met in Rwanda in 2005 when the country was still recovering from the genocide there in 1994, where 800,000 people were killed in 100 days. There's footage on YouTube of Brooke on stage telling the story. I saw the reality of, of um, people living with HIV and um, no clean water and no adequate medical care and um, was really uh, ripped to the core. And, um, on her last day in the country, Brooke's guide, Joelle Nsingyumba, a Hutu, introduced her to Albertine. He basically laid down his life for this, for this young Tutsi girl, and her whole family were killed, but he made a promise to himself and to God that he would rather die than watch, stand by and watch this little girl be killed. And so I sat 
In that meeting, Joelle issued Brooke a challenge to take Albertine's story and share it with the world through her music. And she did. You know, every time she sung Albertine, she would get up and she would tell Albertine's story. And it, sometimes it was 10 minutes, you know, long. And she would tell that story every night. And then she'd be talking about what happened in Rwanda all day. And I think it just, it just became, it was just a lot. I approached talking about it with some hesitation because I'm also aware of how disrespectful it would be to talk about my own trauma when you come at it from the perspective of I'm, I was singing and, and writing about someone else's trauma, which was infinitely more. <laughs> so, you know, perspective, hello. <laughs> um, I think why Albertine, um, why carrying that was, was so heavy, and I, and, and I wouldn't have changed it for anything, it was an enormous privilege, was it wasn't like it was even singing a song every night, it was keeping a promise every night. And so, um, and so it didn't feel like something that I could ever just casually get up and sing. But each time I was aware that I was trying to keep my word um, to these people and, and um, who I had come to, to love um, so deeply and to tell this really sacred story. carried Albertine's story on tour through Australasia and the US for two years. And, as she says, it was a privilege, but it wasn't one that she carried lightly. There were moments of happiness and light during that period. She got married to Scott Lidgetwood right in the middle of the tour. But even that was followed really soon after by bad news. We're going to hear more about that soon, but as Kimbosha said, it was a lot. So it's not surprising that during this time, Brooke wasn't really writing. By the end of 2009, which was the year that she'd set aside to write Flags, she only had three songs for the album. Certainly I was still in the depths of that post-Albertine, not fog, I don't know how you'd describe that time. I guess it was just exhaustion. So trying to climb back from deep exhaustion, like it takes a lot of time to get that exhausted that deep in your bones. And so it's going to take a bit of time to, to rejuvenate in all of those places. And I think the key for me is I've always wanted to heal wholly, like W-H-O-L-O-Y, and let processes, um, yeah, complete. I think it can be easy to really to want to shortcut the healing process when, when something happens or you go through a difficult season. Um, and I think that you can do that, but it tends to produce cynicism or bitterness if you just kind of try and shut things down and keep going. So for me, um, it, was a, it was a long process and a process I wanted to give time and space to and be attentive to. Here's what Brooks' manager Campbell remembers. The writer part of the artist will come to the writing when it's 
ready to go. And I think sometimes writers feel like they're in a blocked period, but it's just they haven't found the right space to work in or, or to uh, have the creative muse strike them. So I think what you're trying to do as a manager is just make them comfortable, make their consideration nothing more than thinking about writing and when they can write and what they want to write about. So with her in that period of time, we were just trying different things. In part one of Resonate, we heard about how Brooke was inspired to write again at Coachella. And that's what the song Coachella is about. After that, she used the new sights and sounds of travel as inspiration for the album. It was written in such a variety of different places around the world. Sometimes on her own in the mountains of North Carolina or, in fact, at a a beach house that I have in the far north of the Coromandel. She was up there for a while uh, and then in Los Angeles. So she was all over the world trying to find what it was that she wanted to say and how she wanted to say it. I think sometimes as an artist, one of the most important things that you can do before you speak through your art is to listen and making that space to actually monitor and process um, what's going on in my internal world, what's happened, where am I? Um, Unfortunately, it's not a process that you can expedite or fit into kind of a tidy calendar box. In the winter, I went to um, the really rugged Sonoma coast in Northern California and was in a freezing house by the sea there that I didn't read in the fine print, didn't have any heating apart from a fire, and I'm a terrible fire builder. Rugged up in duvets, reading 20th century American Gothic writers like Steinbeck and Kerouac, Brooke started collecting imagery for the album. You can hear it in the song Crows and Locusts. There's definitely a healthy dose of kind of darkness in that song and yes a certain apocalyptic quality to the lyric it was the I was listening to it for the first time in years and years and years um, a few weeks ago and, and um, what I do love about it is that it feels so bleak and so desperate and hopeless right up until that last verse where the girl kind of gets her courage again and finds something to keep going. The song's actually a great example of a change that Brooke was going through in terms of her approach to songwriting generally. I think Albertine had been so incredibly personal and then returning to those um, really personal places um, night after night, out of necessity and also I think out of a kind of commitment to integrity, I did that. But I think I wanted to, with Flags, experiment and needed to experiment with what it was like just to grow my writing muscles in terms of practicing narration and um, creating worlds um, that other characters inhabit where I wasn't the protagonist or the antagonist, um, but that there were other characters kind of living their lives within the worlds of those songs. Focusing on other characters also made the performing part easier. The songs became more friends than dependents. It felt like I had healthy relationships rather than all of these characters or people, you know, who, who... desperately depended on me for their survival. It was more like the songs of Flags kind of became friends that I got to hang out with each night on tour. 
Through this period, Brooke was also spending quite a lot of time with real friends, the ones who went with her to Coachella, Scott, who was still her boyfriend at the time, and other musicians like Ben West and John Foreman, who we already heard she wrote the song Betty with. About this time, a new friend also showed up, an English songwriter called Matt Hales from the band Aqualung. We had just moved to LA and I was trying to you know, meet people and get a sense of what the community of music makers was like in my new home. A friend of Matt's, an engineer named Eric Robinson, who's going to pop up in part three of Resonate, suggested that he meet this musician called Brooke Fraser. And he wasn't the only one. It always hits me that if more than one person or several people independent of each other say, this person's fantastic and also you would really get on with them and you should meet them, that there's something in it. So when a couple of months later Eric got in touch to say that this magical person called Brooke was making a record and would be interested in maybe trying to write a song with me, I of course said yes because who doesn't want a magical person come to visit them. At that stage I had experimented with writing with quite a lot of people and, and it was probably me, but it, you know, it, it, I feel like it, it didn't click more than it did click um, with somebody and so... There was a knock on the door and there she was. Writing a song together can be pretty awkward. Think about it, for a lot of musicians, writing is a personal and private process and then you have to go and let a complete stranger in on it. It's a little bit of kind of a, I guess I'll show you mine then. <laughs> if you show me yours. But if you're lucky, things just click. It was immediately clear it was going to be fine because she had this guitar, which was, she proudly told me, a kind of copy of Paul Simon's acoustic guitar. We were both transplants from somewhere else. And I think she liked tea. I like tea a lot. And I do have a little bit of trouble with people who don't like tea. So I'm presuming that she was into it. A bit of chit-chat, a cup of tea, all very important parts of the process, but eventually you just have to start writing. I had been playing around with three groups of three as a rhythmic idea. So it's time signature, which you'd call 9-8, which is no one ever uses, even though it's fabulous, because it's not just three. It's like, it's all the threes. It's the most three-ish possible time signature. <laughs> it's like waltz cubed. And the other thing was that I just got this Indian harmonium which is a little kind of pump organ thing, which makes a drone, a beautiful sort of wheezy, reedy drone. And so I think we probably sort of went, okay, look, we're going to do something in nine, and it's going to have a wheezy drone, because I've just got this instrument that does wheezy drones. And you've got your Paul Simon guitar. I think I just held the drone, and we just tried to play... Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> I like that. And then we started singing. I just made a record where I'd written a lot of songs from the point of view of relationships that were mature and road-worn and perhaps a little bit broken. I'm a romantic person, but actually my favourite sort of romanticism is kind of ground-level, dusty, knackered, real kind of love stories. You could write a Why Don't I Love You Anymore song, or Why Don't You Love Me Anymore song, or I'm So Sad It's Over song. But actually, so much more interesting to write a 
I can't stand you, but I can't live without you song. We tried and tried to loosen the knots, thinking once we're untangled we'll be better off. But it's these failures and faults that hold us together. Better or worse, but what else can we do? And better or worse, I am tethered to you. It's not either of us, tell me who are we fooling? This beautiful tangle, this prisoner's blue It's a beautiful knot that we just can't undo Together we're one but apart, tell me The bit at the end of the chorus where the melody leaps up on the Who Are We Fooling line just sort of happened and it was like, whoa, hang on, hang on. You know, you know as a songwriter when those things happen and your hairs stand up. And we both had that feeling. And once you've got one of those in a song, basically it's, it's game over, that's it. You know you've got a great thing you ha and you must write it, you must finish it, you must record it because that magical thing that just happened is not normal when this happens when you're writing a song the thing the sort of electricity of it is always in the song forevermore i think to have that creative click with somebody and to feel like you are on the same page and kind of dolphining as i call it I'm just going to pop in and explain dolphining, a word that Brooke invented. It's a verb, so a doing word. And you know when you're watching a pot of dolphins jumping and twisting and weaving in and out and they're just so in sync with each other that it's like they are one organism? That's dolphining. I feel like I've, where there's this instinctive sinking of, of direction and movement and, um, and creativity. So with Matt Hales, I experienced that bliss of a thing, which is dolphining. And so that became a, a really, really rewarding collaborative relationship that continued for years after Flags, actually. You know, I think sometimes as songwriters it's frustrating because you, you know, you can't hit lightning every time and if you did it wouldn't be lightning anymore. It would just be strobe, a strobe, <laughs> a, a permanent strobe and people get epileptic fits from that so that's not healthy for everybody. It doesn't mean that the grind isn't worth it as well. I think that you, the more that you're willing to grind and, and do the hard work and um, write and write and write where it feels like you're not getting anywhere, I feel like that, in a way, you know, ploughs the ground for the lightning to strike when it does strike. We've talked a bit about burnout and exhaustion following Albertine, and anyone who's gone through that sort of thing knows how tough it is, but it actually wasn't the only hard thing that Brooke was dealing with at the time. Now, Brooke's really respectful of the privacy of her friends and family, so she's not going to share a whole lot of details about this next stuff, but you will find allusions to all of it in her songs. Early 2008, I, I just had this really strong sense that there was a kind of a dark cloud on the horizon and um, just got a sense that some things were, were going to happen and it just felt a bit ominous. I didn't know what that, what that meant. Brooke pushes through this ominous feeling because she's focused on something else, getting married. Yeah, Scott and I got married in March, which was fantastic. But then, yeah, literally on, on 
our honeymoon, the black cloud that I had sensed on the horizon started to come into view. And I, um, on our honeymoon, um, I found a lump in my breast, which then I had to put off getting seen to because we arrived home. Our best man picked us up from the airport and we went straight from the airport to some dear friend's house. A part of their world had just basically collapsed and things were terrible. So we went straight literally from our honeymoon to our friend's house, you know, cried with them all night. And then the next day got a phone call that somebody in my life had uh, had been injured in a life-changing way. And um, so then we were on a plane back to New Zealand at a hospital bedside for for a couple of weeks. And that was the first two weeks of our marriage. (laughs) And so Ice on Her Lashes, that song, I remember being in the car after I'd gotten that phone call and rushing home to pack to get on a flight to New Zealand. And I remember being on the freeway and looking around at these cars and, you know, driving beside us on the freeway and like looking at how normal everybody looked. And I I remember marvelling that, you know, our whole world had just changed forever, but all these people were still going home from work or going to the supermarket and all of these things. And I think that everybody who has experienced a sudden loss or a, a sudden trauma has experienced that. You think, how is it that the world keeps turning? Did you find it hard to breathe at first? Well, you ended it in disbelief and how much it hurt. Now the ache's still burning, but the world's still turning, isn't it? Honey. I still think of you each time I see the sun. Didn't want to live without you. I love that song. Kim Boche at Sony. I remember when I first got the demo and there was just something about that song that um, just really resonated with me. It's just, it's haunting and beautiful. It's like watching a movie, you know, when you listen to it. Yeah, that's why I love that song. It's just beautiful and it's meaningful and you can hear it in the lyrics. We're all in the circle somewhere, either kind of getting some distance from a past grief or, <laughs> sounds very ominous, but, you know, the reality is probably, you know, there will be another one on the on the horizon at some stage. It's the the circle of life. So Ice on Her Lashes is about um, all of us having a place in that circle. In the end, Brooke's place in the circle would move from grief to recovery, and even her health scare followed this path. I ended up having a biopsy, which I stupidly drove myself to because I just didn't really understand that they would actually be <laughs> putting a huge device inside my body and cutting out a part of it from within me. It was benign with a, um, with they said these types, it would have to be like monitored for the rest of my life because this type doesn't go away on its own and does sometimes turn to cancer. So it was benign, but I would have to monitor it. And so then I, you know, stubbornly decided that that wasn't going to work for me. So we decided to assault it in a different way and then kind of miraculously some months later when I went to get my checkup on it it had disappeared and they had no medical explanation for how it had disappeared. We're adrift on a sailboat My love is the sea Yours is the horizon Constant 
steady. When Scott and I got married, it, it amplified the beauty and it muffled the hard. You know, I, I was reading through a couple of these journal entries this morning and just um, I'm grateful that I recorded so many of these specific ways that, that he loved me through those hard moments and, and how healing that was, how restorative that was, how incredible his instincts were in knowing when to protect me and when to push me, but always was with me in all the, all the important ways. Darling, your love is makes the bittersweet Warms the winter to spring again Secures the cold's defeat Yeah, I think that getting married during that time was... I don't know what would have happened if we didn't, honestly. He, um, that was the beginning of, you know, the most beautiful years of, of my life, so I'm really thankful and I still feel that way about him. <laughs> There's another photo from around this time that you've probably seen. It's the album cover for Flags. In it, Brooke Fraser stands in front of a hand-sewn patchwork flag made up of the blacks and blues of a nighttime ocean. She isn't smiling, but she isn't sad either. She looks strong, defiant. Like, come at me. I can take it. She limps on up to the top of a mountain Looks at the faulted harvest Feels her sweat in the ground And the burn in her nose And the knowing in her guts Something's still gonna grow She ain't leaving till it dies It speaks to a time in my life where I felt like the harvest had faltered on a few levels and I was sitting in, in the bleakness for a little while and then had to, um, had to, had to and chose to pick myself up and keep going. Even the times in my life that have been the most difficult and that I've, that the majority of me has, has wanted to give up, there's that 5% that, that won't let myself. Thanks for listening to part two of Resonate, the podcast celebrating 10 years since the release of Brooke Fraser's Flags. In the third and final part of the series, we head to the studio. I'm not sure what sound you're after. I just thought you wanted the slappy sound. Yeah. Maybe it's the unique sound of the way the fat is distributed over my thigh as opposed to yours. That's quite possible. My legs are like that of a chicken frog. Brooke's pensive right now. She's after something. She hasn't found it. Resonate. Ten years of Brooke Fraser's flags was made by Hee Hee Media in association with Sony Music New Zealand. It was written and hosted by me, Melody Thomas, with research, interviews and editing by Kirsten Johnstone. William Saunders did the final mix. Executive production is by Gabriel Everett, special projects coordinator at Sony Music New Zealand. Thank you so much to Brooke Fraser, CRS Management, Kim Boshett and the team at Sony, and to Matt Hales. Hey.